Good morning. Am I on? Am I on? Can you hear me? Good morning, family. Happy Sabbath to you. Congratulations, graduates. The class of 2018. Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. This morning, want to say thank you to several people. Want to say thank you first to our principal, Ms. Leiterman. Want to thank you so much. Our vice principals, our teachers, our staff. If you work at Andrews Academy, do you mind standing for just one moment so we can acknowledge you this morning? If you work at Andrews Academy. They say one of the hardest jobs in the world is teaching. And so I'm so grateful for your dedication. And I think you should be applauded today, not simply for your dedication, for we know that your fruits and your labor, clearly, they show. And so we are grateful for your hard work this morning. To the administration of this fine institution that we all love and appreciate to the pastor and the pastoral staff of this church, Pastor Nelson, Pastor Martin, the entire team, to everyone who serves here at PMC, we want to say thank you. I bring you greetings this morning from my newly re-elected president of the Lake Region Conference, Dr. R. Clifford Jones, our secretary, Garth Gabriel, Treasurer Yvonne Collins, Vice President Eddie Allen, and our Ministerial Director Michael Horton. I also bring you greetings on behalf of the Highland Avenue Seventh-day Adventist Church, where I am privileged to serve as the associate pastor under the one and only my favorite preacher, and I am biased and unapologetic, Pastor Jason C. North, who is my lead pastor. I am so grateful for him and his mentorship. Last but not least, we want to say thank you to every parent in this room. If you are a parent, grandparent, sibling, or of any relation to our graduates, do you mind standing this morning? (laughs) Graduates, can we stand and applaud those who have supported you this entire time? Thank you so much. Now it's time for the word. You did not come to hear me, but you came to hear a word from the Lord. And there is a word this morning. And so I'm going to ask if you would make me feel at home. And if everyone in this room could stand at this time. And if you would politely and permissively clasp the hand of the person next to you as we go to our Father in prayer. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. Father, we thank you for amazing grace and how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like all of us. We once were lost Lord, we're so glad that we're found. And it's because of your sacrifice that we can declare that today. But Lord, I believe the graduates have something 
that they would like to say, because in the verse it says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. Tis grace that has seen us thus far, and it is surely grace that will see us home. Lord, if we had to translate that into the language of scholasticism, we would say through many pop quizzes, final exams, and hard classes, we have already come. And surely it is not of our own merit that we are here, but it is your grace that has seen us thus far. And we're counting on your grace to take us home. So Father, speak now in these few moments that we have together. May your word go forth with power and profundity. And may we be transformed by it. We have not come to play church today. We've come to be changed. And that happens when you come in. So spirit of the living God, fall afresh in this place. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. I'm going to ask that you remain standing and allow your Bibles to accompany you to your highest natural peak. As we go to the word this morning, I'm going to ask that you would go with me to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings. This historical, seemingly prophetic book of the Bible, 2 Kings chapter 6, very familiar passage of scripture this morning, but let's look at it in a slightly different way. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8, and we'll end on verse 23. Do you guys mind if we read the Bible today? Thank you so much. 2 Kings chapter 6, starting at verse 8, when you have it, say, "Mm mm-hmm, If you don't say, "Mm mm-mm, I hear a few. We'll wait on you. I want to make sure everyone is there. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. This morning, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, and it reads as follows. Now, the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, my camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once, but twice over. Double protection. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, I love this part, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom." You guys thought Watergate was serious. (laughs) So he said, go and see where he is that I may send and get him. 
And it was told him, saying, Surely he is in Dothan. Hold on to that name. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And this is all for one man, ladies and gentlemen. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Lord, thank you. Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, do not fear. Gabe, I love this text. Do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Somebody ought to say amen. Amen. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open my eyes, open his eyes, I'm sorry, that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, pay attention, graduates, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Hang in there, we're almost done. Now Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. Watch this part. So it was when they had come to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of, open their eyes. And they saw there they were inside Samaria. Now, when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? Double emphasis. But he answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and bow? Set food and water for them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Last verse. Then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away and they went to their master. So the bands of the Syrian raiders came no more into the land of of Israel. You may be seated this morning. This morning, in the few moments that we have, graduates, I want to talk to you under the subject, angels in the outfield. Angels in the outfield. When I was a kid, one of my favorite things to do was spend time with my father. We love spending time with one another. I am the firstborn of three. I consider myself the favorite of the three, but don't tell my siblings I say that because they will fight me over it. But either way, I know it to be true, so therefore it is, right? 
And so my, my, my father and I, we love to spend time together. And one of our favorite activities, Ms. Leiterman, is we like to watch movies together. Now, we didn't go to the theater and watch movies. We like to bring movies home. But there was this old school classic place. I don't mean Blockbuster. I mean before there was Blockbuster. It was cheap. It was easy. Its logo was orange and green. And everybody who was born in the 1990s or earlier knows what I'm talking about. It was called Family video. Family video. We would go on family video and we'd get all kinds of movies. All kinds of movies. I'm not talking about scary movies. We stayed away from that stuff. I'm a pastor's kid, by the way. And so we couldn't have that in my house. But we watched things like Like Mike or a Michael Jordan movie or a Jackie Chan movie. And my father and I would exercise our fake martial arts skills on one another. He would always win because he was bigger. Now that is no longer the case, so he won't fight me anymore. But nevertheless, we still think that we are martial arts specialists by simply watching Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee. But one of my favorite movies that we brought home, it is the 1994 classic. Maybe the year some of you were born in here. It is Angels in the Outfield. Angels in the Outfield. What's so special about this movie, Eric? I'm glad you asked. Well, see, there was this young foster child named Roger and his friend JP, and they were huge fans of the California Angels. And so in order to get into the games, they would sneak into the games and get exclusive access because the team was so bad, so bad, that they didn't even have great security. No one was worried about them sneaking in. No one was worried about them losing funding for them sneaking in because the team was making no money anyways because no one wanted to see the Angels play. They just downright stunk. Yet, these boys, excited by the cracking of the bat, the swift pace of a ball through the air, and the smell of a leather mitt, were ever attracted to this stadium. And as they snuck in, Roger began to reminisce over the times in which he, his father was actually in his life momentarily. And he longed for this connection back. And so one day he asked his father, Dad, what's it going to take for you and I to have that connection again? And his father sarcastically replied and said, If the angels can win the pennant, then maybe you and I can be close one more time. After he prays this prayer to God, this this, this desperate plea of trying to remedy his family and reconcile this relationship between his father and I, a star twinkles that he does not see. And the next game that he sneaks into is very interesting because now Roger is seeing things that he did not see before. Pay attention, graduates. He's seeing now, even though that there are men who are supposedly professionals, yet incapable of winning games, are now being assisted by divine beings. They are known as angels. So where a man could not leap and catch a ball headed over the fence, somehow he seemed to have mounted wings and elevated beyond his normal stature and limitation of jumping to grab a ball out of the air and save a home run that would save the game. Because angels were working in the outfield. It's amazing to me. I'm looking at how this movie is portraying and I'm looking at the success that the angels are going through, even though they're good and they're graduated and they're now in their working profession or they're now in college and they have this whole realm of knowledge. They still need something a little extra to get them to where they need to be. This is the same plight in our story. 
For here is Elisha, the prophet of God, who has caught the mantle of Elijah, he who worked wonders, he who rained down fire from glory with just a snap of his finger and a word, he who sat there and sipped lemonade as the 450 plus prophets of Baal plus the prophets of Ashtoreth began to fool themselves into believing that they could prove that their God was more significant than his. He is now the, he's now the protege of Elijah and And to top it off, he asked this bold request before Elijah left. He said, Elijah, can I please have a double portion of your spirit? Elijah says, this is a hard thing that you've asked. But as you see what happens after he catches and he sees Elijah go and he catches the mantle, it's amazing to see the things Elijah does. He makes axe heads float. He brings people back to life. He can simply speak a word and people who are disrespectful to the baldness of his head will be swallowed by she bears. The power of God rests in him so thick that if you think about when he dies, to fast forward to that point momentarily, they would throw somebody in his tomb and that person would be shaken to life by his very bones. That is power. Yet, Someone seeks to test this power. His name is the king of Syria. We'll get to his name momentarily. It's very important that you understand who the king of Syria is. But the king of Syria has decided he is going to come after Elisha and Israel. Because he does not like how Israel is operating. They are enemies. They are foes. They are rivals. This is a traditional thing. Every spring, get up. It's time for us to fight. We don't like you. You don't like us. Let's go at it. That is how this operation was. But here we are looking at something special unfolding. And there are three lessons that I want you to take away from this story today. Three lessons. Grads, please don't nod off. I know some of you stayed up late celebrating. You plan to stay up late tonight celebrating. Remember, your graduation is early in the morning. And so I'm going to ask that you would at least give me the next 20 minutes, and then I'm going to try and sit down. Is that okay? Thank you so much. Three lessons I want you all to learn from this story. One, just because you are Christian, just because you have graduated from this fine Adventist institution does not make you immune to trouble. As the matter of fact, because you are Christian and because you are graduating from this fine institution, because you know your Bible very well, because you've learned that Jesus died for you, I want you to learn to expect trouble. As a matter of fact, I want you to become accustomed to saying this phrase to yourself. I am a proud magnet of trouble. Can you say that with me? I am a proud magnet of trouble. You won't go looking for trouble. Trouble will come and find you. And that is exactly what happens here in this text. And believe me, this isn't the first person to go through trouble because all of God's children go through trouble. As you think about David, David went through trouble. As you think about Moses, Moses was chased by Pharaoh. He went through trouble. As you think about Paul, Paul was shipwrecked and beaten and scorned and stoned. He went through trouble. As you think about Jesus, your Savior to whom you hail as your Redeemer, he went through trouble. And as a matter of fact, he warned you, because you love me, you will go through trouble. 
This is what being a Christian looks like. I don't want you to be fooled by these cotton candy, fluff television preachers who get out here and tell you if you simply return your tithing offering, you will never see trouble. I don't want you to go out here thinking that just because you come and sit in these pews in this beautiful edifice and sit around all these amazing people, you are immune to trouble. As a matter of fact, I'm letting you know right now, the more you continue down this path, the more trouble you will face. But be encouraged because God has declared, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When when they try and burn you, I will be with you. When they try and hang you, I will be with you. If you don't believe me, ask John. They tried to burn him in a boiling pot of oil and they couldn't even pull it off. They couldn't keep Paul and Silas in jail. They couldn't even keep Peter incarcerated. Because God is with you, but you cannot be fooled into thinking that you will not face trouble. Now, here's something I really need you to grasp, because I want you, someone talked to me the other day, and they said, do you think that because we know scripture, and that because we are who we are, and so on and so forth, that that we will have a lightened experience, Pastor Ferguson, in the time of trouble? I found it interesting and I said, you know what, it's, it's intriguing that you are calling on your own actions and not on the relationship that you are supposed to have. You see, ladies and gentlemen, it is not your biblical knowledge, your Sabbath school lesson prowess, or your ability to break down Greek or Hebrew or even the doctorate in any of those subfields. It is your relationship with Jesus Christ that seals you and saves you and takes you through the multitude of troubles that you will face in this life. And graduates, I do not want you to get out there and land in your collegiate experience, your military experience, your work experience, and begin to neglect the God who brought you this far. Do not begin to rely on your own knowledge, but lean not to your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall, not might, he shall direct your paths or make them straight. When trouble comes, I need you not to cuss first. Can I be honest in here? I assumed I could preach truth from the pulpit. Is that okay? And so I I need you not to cuss first as if some of us aren't human. Oh, we're Christian. We don't cuss. You still do it in your head. I I, I need you not to go to Facebook first and put out all kinds of heresy and blasphemy and all types of nonsense because you are emotionally disrupted. No, I need you to keep your eyes on Jesus. For if I turn my eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, then the things of earth will grow strangely dim. As I stare off into the light of his glory and his grace. Already Satan is trying to mess with my sermon. He just cut my iPad off. Amazing. But it's okay. But God is faithful to you if you allow him to be. Wait, I don't want you to be fooled either. Sometimes you need not call your friends. It's, it's getting really interesting how many amens I'm losing the more I start to talk about this. Watch this. It's interesting how... When you're going through a breakup or a situation with your significant other and you'll call that person who hasn't been able to sustain a relationship their entire life and you call them like, can you give me relationship advice? As if the same God who did not create you and the person you claim to love could not mend and put together that which you truly feel valuable. 
But we will call on others before we call on God. I'm asking you to flip the script. Turn this thing upside down. Instead of going out there and posting all kinds of things, instead of searching on Instagram, instead of pulling up Google in this information age, I'm asking you to go to the God who is the king of epistemology, he who knoweth all knowledge, who created beyond knowledge, who knows your very existence, being, and numbers of hair on your head. When's the last time you counted how many hairs you have on your head? He named and numbered them. When they fall off, it is no surprise to him. They have to ask permission. If a sparrow wishes to fall out of the sky, it must commend to the Lord its spirit. It must ask God, is it okay if I stop flapping my wings? And if he gives it permission, it can. If not, it shall not. So why do you go to these superficial means to remedy that? which you seek to make eternal. Do not, but trust in him. I want, you to re- I want to read this quote to you. This is about trusting your relationship, and it's by Max Lucado, and it says, you'll get through this. It was at this point that the brothers began to realize out of danger, that they were out of danger. The famine still raged. The field still begged. Circumstances were still hostile. Did you get that? It's all about Joseph here. Joseph and his brothers are standing before him right now. That is the scene that Max Lucado is painting. And he's letting them know, even though they're asking for this this food right now, and even though they're asking for stability right now, the problem is that what they just left has not changed. Their circumstances have not changed. The economy has not changed. But watch what they realize. But they were finally safe, Max Lucado says. Max Lucado says. They would make it through this because they were good men? No. That's not how they made it through it, but they made it through it because the prince was their brother. I wish that I could really convey so desperately to every single person in this room, particularly my graduates, as you go out into this world, I know that you have fears. I know that you are concerned. As you look at the economy, as you look at gas prices that went from 245 to now 319 in less than two months, as you look at trying to obtain a car, as you look at trying to afford college, I'm asking you not to worry about the circumstances. Why? Because the prince is your brother. I wish that you would recognize that you are a relative of Jesus Christ and there is no relative of Jesus Christ because Jesus says, I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. If we are truly relatives, if we really claim that God is omnipotent and omniscient and omnibenevolent, but most importantly that he is my father, then I have no concerns because he will take care of you. Trust that even in the midst of your trouble. I got to keep rolling because I want to make sure we get out of here at a decent time. And so the next point that I want you to keep in mind, the first point, remember, is to expect trouble. It's coming. As soon as you graduate, it's coming. You're going to see your first bill and say, oh my goodness. Trust me, like I I try my best not to look in my mailbox on the entire weekend because I don't want my weekend ruined by a figure that I look at that seems insurmountable and way more than what's since in my current checking account. Yet, there's still a roof over my head. My fridge isn't full, full, but it has enough. 
And God has continued to protect me along this way. And if he'll do this for me, surely he'll do it for you. So expect trouble. The next point I really need you to hold on to, we're, we're, we're getting there. Know which side you're on. What, what do you mean, Pastor Bell? I'm glad you asked. Well, see, the servant was blind. What do you mean he was blind? I thought, did he not go outside and see that there was an Assyrian army outside? You are correct, but he was blind to what was really taking place behind the scenes. Gabby, watch this. So the servant is Elisha's servant. Okay, let me say that one more time. The servant is Elisha's servant. Okay, somebody is missing it right here. I'm just going to say it one more time. So the servant, Judy, watch this. The servant is Elisha's servant. He's not the average man's servant. So he's seen floating axe heads. He's seen how a word from Elijah can simply make Naaman go dip seven times. And after he dips seven times in one of the most disgusting rivers on the face of the planet Earth, somehow out of this mud-filled place comes new life and freshness that has never been pierced by this man's skin. Somehow this young servant missed out on the fact that he's actually Elisha's servant. And I'm trying to figure out, do you recognize that you are Christ's servant? Whose side are you on? Recognize that even though things look grim, you are still on the Lord's side. And so being on the Lord's side, I told you he will take care of you. Watch this. Sometimes we feel like this quote that I'm about to read for you from Eric Metaxas when he's chronicling Bonhoeffer, that great German Protestant, he who went after the Third Reich, he who tried to take down Hitler. This is what we learned. At the beginning of the war, it was possible to separate the Nazis from the Germans. Pay attention and recognize that not all Germans were Nazis. As the clash between the two nations wore on, and as more and more English fathers and sons and brothers died, distinguishing the difference became more difficult. Eventually, the difference vanished altogether. When Germans working to defeat Hitler, watch this now, when Germans working to defeat Hitler and the Nazis contacted Churchill and the British government, hoping for assistance to defeat their common enemy from the inside, ladies and gentlemen, there were agents on the inside. But because all they could see was pure negativity, and because they were not willing to look beyond enemy lines and see that there were angels in the outfield waiting to be summoned, waiting to be dispatched, waiting to be called on so that they may do the work that those on the outside of the fence could not do, they shut it down. They rejected those who were behind enemy lines. Lives could have been saved. This war could have been ended sooner. But we do not realize or they did not realize that there were people behind enemy lines. What am I trying to arouse you to? I'm trying to wake you up to the notion that even though things can look grim at times, if you recognize whose side you're on, then you'll recognize that there is no side that he is limited to. He who works over here also works over there. 
The same God who stands next to you and declares to be your protector is also waiting on you to simply call on him and let him handle your situations. Think about this. Let me recall to your memory for just one moment. Think about that night before your final when you just found out during the day that you had a final the next day and you did not do the study guide and you did not do any of the study sheets and you did not make a cheat sheet or a cheat card or anything like that and you went in there praying And somehow, when you walked in the classroom, the teacher uttered these words to you, if your grade is a B plus or higher, you are exempt. And by the grace of God, you were able to walk out of that exam, not having taken that exam, even though you didn't study for it. Why? Because the same God who was working over here is the same God who was working over there. And the same God, when you go to your jobs, when you go to wherever God is commissioning you to go, recognize even as evil arises, even when it seems insurmountable, even when things just don't seem to be going your way, if you know you are on God's side, then you know that even though your boss is evil and is threatening to throw a pink slip on your desk, you have no concern because the same God who sits with you working at your desk, allowing you to do fantastic work and bring him glory, is the same God who will cause that boss, even though she writes your name on the sheet to tear it up because you are too valuable to be fired. It is that God who works in both places. But the problem was the servant couldn't see that. And that is my challenge to you today. Before I remedy this answer, that is my challenge for you today. Stop looking at your problems and start looking at God. Let me say that one more time. Stop looking at your problems and start looking at God. Sometimes we get too caught up in what's happening in politics, what's happening in nation's capital, what's happening in North Korea and China and so on and so forth, and the polar ice caps are melting. You forget who made them. And you focus so much on what CNN and Fox News feeds you that you forget the word that has already declared to you, I am still in control. Graduates, turn your eyes back on him and watch what he does for you. And sometimes I need you to recall the victories that he's brought you through. It's okay to reminisce on the places that God has taken you from. Some of you were afraid just four years ago, just five years ago, about freshman year, figuring out where you were going to sit at the lunch table, trying to figure out what food you would eat, who your friends would be, and now there's 54 of you sitting here today, and you're just like, oh, that was fun, because he brought you through that entire process. Don't forget the little wins. Some of you had things that you were addicted to, that you were struggling with, but you no longer struggle with anymore. Celebrate those wins. That is God assuring victory in your life. Do that in remembrance of him. Not in remembrance of how great you are, but in remembrance of him. Recognize that there is more with you than those who are against you. Now, this is my favorite part of the sermon, and if I'm alone to enjoy this, I apologize. But I'm excited about this, because this blew my mind when I found this, and I want to share it with my family today. 
I don't mean to sound like a movie, but I honestly, I, I tried, as preachers we tried, but I, I couldn't find a better line. It, it just fits. With great power comes great responsibility. All of you are like, you're such a cliche. I'm sorry. I tried. Spider-Man had it best, and I appreciate Uncle Ben for that line. With great power, graduates, comes great responsibility. I, w- I want to break something very important down to you so you can see how pertinent this story is to your life. You see, I, I was trying to avoid saying this, but it's necessary. So in the Hebrew, you see the words king of Syria in your Bible? That is technically not the word that's there. Stick with me. It's not wrong. Different translation. Elder Glassford, the words there are Melech Aram. Melech Aram. That is King Aram. When two words, Jen, are juxtaposed like that in the Hebrew, specifically two nouns, we call that a noun construct change. So in order to translate that correctly, that is the king of Aram, genitival, king of Aram. Why is that significant? Because if you only stick to Syria, that title, which is the title of the region, then you'll miss out on something very intriguing that I found. You guys ever skip over those chapters in your Bible that say, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and they're like six chapters worth of begots, and you feel like it's just unnecessary to read all of that, all those genealogies? Sometimes it's necessary, and here's why. Because Adam, graduates, stick with me, Adam begot Cain and Abel and Seth, right? Seth begot Enosh. Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. Stay with me. Noah had how many sons, everybody? Three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, we're going to stick to Shem's line for a moment because that's where the significance lies. So Shem's prominent descendants, because it's a whole list there, are Aram, Someone said, oh boy, I like that. That's what I said. Aram, Nahor, Terah, and and this very interesting person's name, Abraham. Hmm. Abraham's most prominent and promised son is Isaac. Isaac begot Esau and Jacob, and Jacob's name is also known as, or changed to, what everyone? Israel. Guess who's in the same bloodline as Israel? Aram is. It was quiet in this house today. Aram and Israel are technically related. And the interesting part, because I told you to hold on to this word, so I hope that you did, the intriguing part, Ms. Sanford, about this entire process is that all of this takes place at Dothan. 
Some of you are looking like, why, why is that significant? Well, there's only two places in the Bible, not Dathan, Dothan. There's only two places in the Bible where the word Dothan is mentioned. Right here in 2 Kings 6, and the other one is Genesis 37. Does anybody know what Genesis 37 is? Genesis 37 is the story of Joseph, and it was at Dothan that Joseph, who had a dream, was attacked by his relatives And later on, that same person would be sold into slavery, taken to another capital, and there empowered when his brothers came before him with the option to have them killed. I'll say amen for you. Here, I'm looking at this and I'm trying to figure out, well, what is the significance? I'm not trying to draw a clean parallel or anything like that. As a matter of fact, I'm pulling on a literary device that we call dramatic irony. It's ironic that at Dothan, you will find that relatives will attack relatives and relatives will turn on relatives and relatives will then have, if you notice something, Elisha had vision. I'm not going to say a vision, but he had vision. He could see beyond things that they were unable able to see and that in that moment he had the opportunity to have them killed as he takes them to Samaria but what does he decide to do graduates instead of doing what every else one of us would have done in this room he decides to feed them Instead of killing his enemy, who has now been delivered into his hands, easily and craftily, mightily and powerfully, he has assembled them right there in the capital of Israel, right before the king and his regents and the entire army. It could be a slaughter fest. It could be a day of celebration. It could be a day of conquering. And yet he decides not to do this. What lesson can we learn from this? I want to know, graduates, how will you respond when you have the wand of power? in your hand, when you are elevated to CEO or CFO or supervisor or boss on your job, how will you repay those who have done you wrong? Will you see them as those who are crafted in the same image of God as you are? Will you see them as the same people from the same bloodline as you are, not genomically or genetically, but bought with the same price, sealed by the same blood, a part of the same Christological sacrifice that you claim to be a part of? What will you do in that moment? And the thing is, I've heard scholars, and I've read about 20 commentaries on this text, and I've heard scholars contest over this text saying, well, you know, he said they were captives of the bow, and according to the rules, he couldn't kill them. I find that to be fallacious, and here's why I find that to be fallacious, because when has the rules stopped someone from sinning? Because David, knowing who he was, yet committed power rape, adultery, murder, lying, and stealing, and yet the rules did not stop him, but they were in place. Moses, a murderer, would bury his own kinsman's sandy hair, his own kinsman's face into the sand, and yet the rules did not stop him. Paul, persecuting Christians, knowing that murder is wrong, yet... The rules, which he supposedly defended, did not stop him. Why am I telling you this? Because if you believe that when you get to where you are, that the rules will keep you from getting the revenge that you feel in your heart you deserve, you're wrong. 
It is not the rules that keeps you. For even Paul says it's those same rules in Galatians 2, 19 and 20 that really crucify me. It's those rules. It's those rules that convict me of my wrong. It is that law that shows me I am messed up. It is that mirror that stands there with a sword waiting to kill me. Yet I am crucified not by myself, but with Christ. Why is that crucial? Because no longer do I live, but Christ now lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who, who loved me and gave himself for me. Why is that crucial? I'm trying to get you to the understanding that you only will be able to pull off something like this through Christ. It is not the rules that keep you. It's not the institution that sanctifies you, but it is Christ's spirit reigning and willing willing to do in you that which is his good pleasure so that you may be saved. How will you respond to those who hurt you? Will you remember the words of Jesus who said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those when other, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of things of evil and falseness about you because they did the same stuff to me. I love the way Paul David Tripp puts it in his book, Dangerous Calling. He said, you see, sin is not first an intellectual problem. Yes, it does affect the intellect. But sin is first a moral problem. It is about my rebellion against God and my quest to have for myself the glory that is due to him. Sin is not first about breaking the abstract set of rules. Sin is, is foremost about breaking my relationship with God. And because I have broken this relationship, it is easy and natural for me to rebel against him. Get to know your God. Fall in love with him and never leave him because I promise you, he will never leave you. But the moment you forsake him, watch what happens. Peter, watch what happens. But trust him, and he will take you further than you can go. There's a need, and I'm going to challenge my graduates now. There's a need for spirit-filled Christians in the world today. I need to say that one more time because I don't think you guys heard me. There's a need for spirit-filled Christians in the world today. It is his spirit that works in us to will and to do his good pleasure, right? But I believe that the 54 of you can be the next angels in the outfield that we truly need to see working in our institutions, working in this nation, working all around the world to really change this world. No longer will we wait for freedom to ring, but we will usher in freedom's reign. Your smiles will be in the midst of the storms, will be the the breaking of bondages and yokes that others need. Your zeal for your work in spite of your evil bosses and supervisors and teachers and whatever the case may be, even in low pay, that will transform the atmosphere of your career centers. Your choice to live for Christ is what is necessary for others to come and say, what must I do to be saved? And you will escort them 
past the living rooms that are convoluted with the foolishness of their life. You will lead them past this, the, the processes of institutionalism that seem to limit their capacity and ability to reach a savior. And you will lead them to Calvary's Hill where you will point to a savior who was narcissistically nailed and hoisted next to heathens on your behalf. And you will let them know that it is that same blood that saved you and that same blood that can save them. I pray people don't see you. I pray they see Jesus. That is the goal. But I leave you with something very interesting. I'm going to be transparent for a moment. Indulge me. Who would have thought that the boy who almost drowned in a hotel pool, called fat and unfit, almost sliced by a machete-wielding hooligan, bullied in high school, lost 18 people to death in his four-year high school term, called all kinds of racial slurs, bombastically bombarded with belligerent comments concerning his intelligence, graduated high school with a 2.5 GPA. Who would have thought that that young guy would be able to deadlift over 500 pounds, bench over 225 pounds, and squat over 400 pounds? They called him fat and unfit. President of his honor society, dean's list award recipient, honor roll award recipient, college graduate, entering his last year of his mastered by divinity degree, dreaming of a PhD in systematic theology, pastoring in a church in Benton Harbor, standing before your distinguished class today with a master's GPA of well over a 3.5. Who would have thought that God would take that kid, open his eyes, and bring him this far. But I'm not the only one who has some questions to ask. Graduates, you have questions to ask yourselves. Like, who would have thought that you would pass Algebra 1? Or 2? I'm getting tired saying this already. Or 3? Or Trig? Or Advanced Calc? Whatever the case is. Biology, anatomy, or physics. Some of you were just happy to get through history. Others of you were just happy to be done with English. And some of you are just so elated that you got through P.E. You could afford, who would have thought that you'd be able to afford to go to school here? Some of your parents are wondering how they even afforded your graduation robes. Some of you realize what it feels like to be evicted on multiple times. Some of you have been in car accidents multiple times, lost loved ones, gone through other traumatic experiences. Nick T, it's interesting how we think about this. Who would have thought that we would have made it through the foolishness and our fears of freshman year, the silliness of sophomore year, the junctures of junior year, and this super snail-paced senior year where you've been waiting to get to this moment right here since back in August. How you got accepted into college, only God knows, the military work, or even an extended vacation. Who would have thought that you would make the friends that you did be sitting in the seats where you are or that you would be prepared to turn the world upside down? Who would have thought And the thing is, you would have realized the entire time God was thinking of you because he put angels in your outfield. So graduates, be not dismayed. Whatever be tied, God will take care of you. I'm going to ask the class of 2018 if you would stand at this time.
is I have three specific challenges that I want to ask all of you. Class of 2018, I'm going to ask you to respond by simply shouting at me. Please don't whisper. I want to hear you. And the congregation wants to hear you affirm this as well by saying, we will. Not we do, we will. Class of 2018, I am challenging you to expect trouble, but to pray more, worry less, and lean not to your own understanding, but acknowledge the sustainer of your relationship and of your very being who has carved out for you a straightened path and will guide you along it. If you are willing to acknowledge this and accept this challenge, say, we will. We will. All right, a little louder, guys. We will. Fantastic. Second challenge, I want you guys to know whose side you are on. You represent more than your parents, this institution, but more importantly, you represent God. Knowing this, you will strive to be examples of others, to others, of the love and teachings that you have received, always striving to reflect the light of the sun who will open the eyes of others through you. If you accept This challenge, shout, we will. We will. Last, well, second to last, with the great power that you have been given will come greater responsibility. Then you guys can tear down or build up. You can create environments for positivity and growth, or you can spawn salt pits of destruction. I challenge you to speak life and not death to choose daily to rely on the sufficiency of our Savior and the Spirit's leading. If you accept this, shout, we will. Finally, class of 2018. So proud of you guys. Really am. We started the year together. I didn't imagine that you guys would pick this kid to end the year with. It's the most humbling experience of my life. And I'm so grateful to give you this final challenge as we end our year together, not as seniors, as grads. Awesome. Class of 2018, I challenge you to cling to your class aim. Keep your face always turned toward the sun, S-O-N, capital S-O-N, and the shadows will fall behind you. Knowing this, you have nothing to fear for the future, lest you forget how he's led you thus far. Class of 2018, will you accept the challenge to not forget who's led you thus far, but in all your ways, Seek him and allow him to direct your paths. We will. Family, do you pledge and accept the challenge to support our graduates, to push them to limits that they feel they are incapable, to hold them accountable to the challenges that they just accepted, but most importantly, to uphold them in prayer, knowing that your hands are not strong enough and your arms are not long enough, but you know the God 
who is capable of doing such. If you accept the challenge, family, will you shout, we will? I do not know how long it will be, and I don't know what the future holds for you. I don't know what it holds for me. But this I do know. If Jesus leads you, and if Jesus leads me, we shall get home someday. God bless you.